This picture last week we used to capture one of our key themes. Picture from this summer, Tricia and I spent a sabbatical walking around the United Kingdom, and um, this is off the coast of southwestern England. Uh, Cornwall is the name of the ancient kingdom, now diminished to just a county uh, in England, and uh, sort of capturing in a photo the sense of wonder that's built into our world. Um, And one of the things that we said last week is we need to re-enchant our world. We live in a world where the kind of post-enlightenment, the intellectual narrative has been that um, the only thing that really exists is matter. That there is no spirit. Humans don't have souls. There's nothing that sets us apart from uh, dirt except a little time and a little luck. And uh, so everything that makes life worth living belongs in the attic of our universe, and we live down here on the main floor. Kind of a two-story universe. I'm stealing this image from a a Christian evangelist and pastor named Francis Schaeffer. He talked about a two-story universe in which we are told that reason works down here where we actually live, and facts exist down here where we actually live. And then we like to believe, we use our imagination to invent beliefs and values that make life worth living. But those are just sentimental trinkets stored in the attic of our universe. And we go up there once in a while to look at them, maybe on a Sunday morning if you're a Christian, maybe around Easter or Christmas. Uh, Maybe you have some other uh, place, some other form of spirituality or religion or philosophy where you keep your meaningful trinkets stored, but they're collecting dust and they're of no value and no worth down here where we actually live. And, And that's the world that we are told we live in every day. Uh, and so part of what we can do as believers in Jesus, one of, the, one, of the, one of the greatest ministries we could have for our neighbors is to re-enchant the world, is to say, this is a good place to live and to be. It's not perfect, but um, there are glorious things about who we are, glorious things about where we live. And so part of our calling, I'm convinced, is to re-enchant the world. God wants to re-enchant the world, and He wants to use us to do it. He wants to use us to help people see the things that ordinarily they would overlook. One reason I can speak about this with some knowledge is this has happened to me. I grew up in a home where you're not supposed to use your imagination, you're not supposed to express emotion. Everything is about fact and reason. I stopped reading fiction when I was in the fourth grade. I read encyclopedias for entertainment. You knew something was seriously wrong with me, and I'm telling you right now what it was. Right? Now, maybe if I read past E, I would have become a well-rounded person, but I uh, kind of made it to E and got stuck. Um, and then I met this woman who taught me how to see crocuses in the spring and taught me that little babies matter. And taught me how to notice small things. And, and God has used Trisha to re-enchant my world. To introduce me to things that I thought weren't important. I was a Christian before I met her. But my Christianity hadn't yet started to seep into every part of me. Um, and so, today's a bit of a tag team. Where um, hopefully Trisha will get to work some of that magic of re-enchantment with all of us. I want to start today by talking about the Christian doctrine of creation in Christian creeds. We won't spend much time here, but simply to say, from the very beginning, uh, all the earliest Christian creeds have contained a lot about creation. The the earliest creed we know of is the Apostles' Creed. Its origins are uh, certainly uh, in the second century, but it seems to be based on an earlier confession of faith that originates even uh, sooner in the history of the church. And if you've heard the Apostles' Creed, or maybe used it in worship if you're a Christian, you know how it starts. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. 
So everything else we're going to say about belief in the Son and belief in the Spirit uh, and all the blessings that the Spirit brings comes under this umbrella of God made heaven and earth. Where did we get that idea? The Genesis 1-1 idea. In the beginning, God created the heavens, plural, the Hebrew says, and earth. Um, So you'd find a similar confession in the Nicene Creed from just a couple centuries later. Um, What I'd like for us to see, though, is that uh, as this idea gets developed through Christian history, it's not just a bare fact. So here's the Heidelberg Catechism, taking that line from the Apostles' Creed and starting to unfold it and unpack it and say, hey, what does it mean that we believe in God as a, as a powerful creator of everything in the universe? And uh, what do you believe when you say that? And you'll notice that the first thing it does is to say, Before we get to maker of heaven and earth, we start with Father. I believe in God the Father Almighty. And so the Heidelberg Catechism is saying, hey, the eternal Father of Jesus is also my God and Father because of the work of Jesus. The stuff I've highlighted here in yellow. Right? Don't miss that. That's the main point of this paragraph. That the God who made everything is Not just my God, but my Father. So see how we're already on the path to re-enchanting the universe. The universe is not something cold and personal. There is a personal being behind all of it who wants us to know him. Um, He created everything out of nothing. And then you'll notice that Christian teaching often moves straight from God created to God still sustains and upholds. There are two sides of one coin. Typically, we call this the doctrines of creation and providence. Um, But that that father didn't just make so that we could have great debates about the origin of the universe. He's still involved with the world he made. So it's not a cold and personal universe. It's also not a deistic or mechanistic universe. God, the clockmaker who builds everything, winds it up, and then steps away and has nothing more to do with it. That's not a Christian understanding of the world that would bring some level of re-enchantment to the world, right? A clock still has design and beauty and function, but it's missing a personal touch. And so Christian creeds, when they talk about creation, are re-enchanting the world by talking about um, how God works. And notice that this leads in the Heidelberg Catechism to trust. I trust this God who's my Father and the Father of Jesus. And because he sent Jesus to make me his child, I trust him. And I don't doubt that he's going to provide everything I need in this sad world. So there's an acknowledgement that God created a very good world. And something has happened to distort and disturb that goodness. And that's part of why the world needs re-enchanting. Our ways of thinking about the world are broken. Our ways of moving in the world are broken. Um, and why is God able to uh, turn everything to the good of his children? Because he's almighty. I believe in God, the Father almighty. But it's not enough that he's, he's able to do these things. He wants to do these things for his children because he's a faithful father. And so um, a Christian doctrine of creation shouldn't exist on its own. It shouldn't stand out sort of independently as a, a, a nice, abstract, intellectual position. Um, it, it should always be married to, hey, what's the world we're actually living in like? And who is involved in that world? And what does it mean to know uh, the maker of this world? All right, so let me just say, It shouldn't sound, when we're talking about the origins of the universe, the origins of our planet, the origins of human life, it shouldn't sound like we're talking about something that's mere history. It shouldn't sound like we're talking about something that's a a talking point that lets Christians win debates against people who don't have a good theory of creation. It shouldn't sound like that. It should sound like 
I love living in my father's world. Delight shouldn't be missing from the conversation. Um, that's, that's where we want to start. Okay, we don't have time to go through problems. Let's go with it. Defining our term. If we're going to talk about creation and evolution, we have to know what conversation we're having. And we've got to learn to listen well. Not everyone uses the word evolution in the same way. Not everyone uses the word creation in the same way. So, I'm going to steal with uh, permission from Estella Quinn, uh, a tool from her... Collaboration. Yes, okay, okay. (laughs) Collaboration. The little c, big c concept to help us here. A couple of meanings of the word creation you might hear in everyday conversation. Creation is just, hey, the act of making something, bringing something into being, with no implication about who did it, or how it was done, just saying, you know, when you go buy a Lego creator set, it, do, it doesn't say this box is empty and you need a deity to fashion Lego bricks from nothingness, right? Creation is just, hey, make something, build something. Here's a box full of blocks. Do something cool. Did you create this? I did, right? That's creation, little c. Um, we also use the word creation to talk about the act that brings the universe or the earth or life into being. And usually when it's used in this sense, it implies that a god or gods were, were involved in the process. Otherwise, we'd probably use a different noun, not creation. Right? If we say the creation of the universe, little c, we're probably implying that there was a creator. Otherwise, we might say the evolution of the universe or the origin of the universe. We might pick a different noun. And so typically when we say creation, if we're not talking in this generic sense, we're talking about how the universe came into being, how life came into being, usually that implies that some god or gods are involved. And so you read a lot about the creation stories of the ancient Near East. Now, creation with a big C the most theologically loaded uh, in the Christian community use of this word is this is not the act of some random god or gods or goddesses, but the God who has revealed himself in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments and the act by which he brought the universe and the earth and life into existence by his own power and for his own purposes and all, as Genesis 1 says... On day six of the creation narrative, very good. So do you see how there's more packed into that big C use of the word creation? You can create something that isn't very good if you're talking about creation in this sense. It doesn't imply that a deity was involved and it doesn't make any judgment about whether it was good or bad. But when Christians talk about creation, we're talking about something very good. So, what's going to be in conflict with a Christian understanding of creation? Any theory of the origins of the universe, the earth, or life that diminishes our vision of God's power or elevates our vision of randomness so that God's purposes get subjugated to to kind of functionally the greatest power in the universe is randomness or chance. Or anything that diminishes our sense of the very goodness of the world is already in tension with a Christian understanding of creation. Now, could you embrace teaching about evolution in a way that did those things? You could. There are some Christians who embrace teaching about evolution. They might describe themselves as as believing in theistic evolution for whom those things aren't true, though. Like They they still firmly uphold a vision of God's power and goodness and the very goodness of the world we live in. And I think there are people who embrace what they think is a Christian doctrine of creation who still don't think the world is very good. Right? They've kind of embraced the intellectual side of a Christian doctrine of creation but not the heartbeat of it. So, big C, little c, 
When someone says creation, what are they talking about? Similarly with evolution. We can use this word simply to mean change over time. Our plans have evolved. I don't mean my plans were part of some primordial soup and an amoeba made my plan, which then turned into a, you know, a four-legged mammal plan. Which then, No. When we use evolve or evolution in that sense, we're just saying, hey, over time, things change. Now, typically, we're implying they change for the better. Usually, if someone says, you need to evolve your plan, they don't mean, go make it worse. Um, <laughs> now, you might make it worse, but usually the word implies, you know, progress improvement. Now, in, in, in biological circles, evolution, genetic change over time. One of the things that, if you're my age or older, you might need to educate yourself on the difference between Darwinism and Neo-Darwinism. Because Neo-Darwinism has taken insights from genetics and modified the way evolution used to be thought of and taught back in my day. <laughs> um, so there's a lot more emphasis on genetics and epigenetics in modern evolutionary discussions. So if you're a Christian and you want to have a conversation about creation and evolution with someone, please know what you're talking about first. That doesn't mean you have to have a PhD or be an expert, but... Uh, Augustine back in the 4th century said we need to be careful that our, our non-Christian neighbors don't hear us trying to talk about things that we're ignorant about. And so, again, much more emphasis on genetics and modern biological conversations than you would have had uh, in discussions of evolution say 50 or 100 years ago. So, I think there can be a caricature that, that Christians hate evolution so badly that we should never use this noun. That we should always avoid using the verb evolve. Because somebody might think, I'm an atheist, if I use that word. And this is where we got to go, you know what, many of our neighbors already think we're the police. They already think we're here to police fun and get rid of it. And we don't want to feed the sense that we're now the, the language police too. And listening well means saying, you know how language works? Words have more than one meaning. And evolution can mean simply change over time. A biologist can use the word evolution without saying, I think the greatest power in the whole universe is randomness and chance. Right? Because using the word this way, genetic change over time with no implication about the force that drove that change... That's just a neutral use of the word. And now I've got to have a longer conversation to know where my biologist friend is coming from. Nobody's ever going to mistake me for a biologist. <laughs> Even though I did read the B encyclopedia. <laughs> <laughs> so that's evolution little e. And then there's evolution big e. Or as my, my friend Jack Collins calls this a, a naturalistic understanding of evolution. This is a, a definition from the National Association of Biology Teachers from the year 2000. Um, why didn't I use the most current information from their website? The reason is, I scoured their website and I can't find a definition of evolution on their website right now. And I think that's partly a reflection of how complicated conversations about evolution have become in the scientific community as well as how culturally complex they become in a lot of local uh, school districts. And so an older version of a definition of evolution by this organization made it pretty clear that this is a naturalistic, that if you're doing good science, you're not talking about the existence of the supernatural. Right? This is unpredictable, the process of descent with genetic modification is unpredictable and natural. The subtext here is, it's not supernatural. And what's it affected by? Natural selection, chance, historical contingencies, changing environments. It's unpredictable. There's an element here, a strong element of randomness. Now, you, you wouldn't find that being pushed quite as hard on this organization's website right now. I have my own theories about why that is, but you know I'm not a member of the 
National Association of Biology teacher, so I won't try to speak too much to that. But just to say, I do think this is a representative definition of kind of a popular level understanding in the modern West of what evolution is. Biggie evolution. When I'm talking about not just change over time, but how did life come to exist? How did the universe come to exist? I think the popular level conception is it is randomness, it is chance, it is purely natural processes. And if you want to go up in the attic and talk about your God or talk about creation, that's a nice sentimental value to hold on to. But down here where we actually live in our universe, we know that, um, yeah, we're kind of the products of matter plus time plus chance. That's a big E evolution. Can you see how, for a Christian talking about some of the mechanics that have brought about genetic change over time, and does modern evolutionary theory give some helpful descriptions of those mechanics? That's a different conversation than saying, I want to be a Christian and simultaneously believe in a universe where nothing supernatural exists. I want to be a Christian and believe in a universe where the the foremost power is randomness. That's where the tension and conflict with a, a Christian conception of creation is going to come. So, if, if I could sort of coach you pastorally, I want to steer you away from a couple of extremes. One would be, don't be the kind of Christian who says, you have to have exactly the same conception of the mechanics that God used to create life in the universe that I have, or you're not really a Christian. Other extreme, I would encourage folks who are scientifically inclined, don't say you have to have exactly the same view of the mechanics by which life in the universe originated as I do, or you're not really a thinking person. And I feel like we live in a culture like that, where if I'm not 100% ready to sign the dotted line on big E evolution... I must not be a real scientist. Or, I must not really be intelligent. Or, Pastor Jimmy, if you don't sign on the dotted line for big E evolution, you're just proving what we already know, which is Christians are stupid. They don't know how to use their brains. Now, as a Christian in these conversations, we, we know we've got to push back on that by showing that we do know how to use our brains. In fact, we know how to do things like say, language is complicated and Words have a range of meanings, and we don't make assumptions about what someone means until we have deeper conversations to know where they're coming from. And, again, with, with Estella's help here, chance little c. A couple different ways we could use that on a day-to-day basis. Something that happens without any evident design or purpose or without observable cause. Now, that's my definition of chance. Like if I say I'm going to play a game of chance. Well, you're not a Christian if you... Games of chance don't exist. God has determined and foreordained everything. <laughs> I thought you were Presbyterian. <laughs> you should never use the word chance. Well, no, it's a, it's a really useful word. <laughs> right? What are the chances? Well, I, I'd have a hard time telling you because I, I don't, there's no evident design here. Notice there's a humility in this thing. The fact that there's not an evident design doesn't mean there's no design. The fact that there's no observable cause that I can discern doesn't mean there's no cause. Right? In fact, most of our games of chance, the causes are physics. Roll the dice, and, uh, you know, your physics professor is going to take all the fun out of that game. (laughs) Because they're going to say, oh, yeah, we can know exactly how this is going to turn out. Just... Tell me, tell me all the conditions at the beginning of the game, and I will tell you who's going to win. Nobody wants to play with you. You read encyclopedias when you were a kid. Um, in the realm of science, we might talk about chance when we're talking about something that couldn't be predicted by human means. Our scientific methods wouldn't let us predict this outcome. So we call that chance. Well, now that's different from, you know where the next slide is going to be, right? Little c creation, big c creation. Little e evolution, big e evolution. Little c chance, 
What are the chances? Big C chance. <laughs> this is a worldview commitment that says everything happens without design or purpose. Everything is truly random. There is no design anywhere in our universe. We like to, we like to call it design. We like to think there's purpose. We like to think there's not randomness just to make ourselves feel better. We like to visit the attic and go through grandma's stuff because it has sentimental value. But down here where in the brute reality of where we live, everything is meaningless. We're in fundamental tension with a Christian understanding of the world. Now, we have a question to answer. Did the Christian understanding of the world originate as a visit to the attic? People who kind of can't take living in the real world, where everything is purposeless, and, and so we've invented some stories about gods and goddesses. Well, no, let's, let's make it one god who made everything, is in control of everything, because... That way I can take it easier when you beat me at Yahtzee. Um, or, more seriously, when I'm facing a devastating medical diagnosis, I don't feel like the universe is playing dice with my life. Or, did the Christian understanding of creation originate because the God who made everything wants us to know Him, and He told us about Himself, and he told us about the world he made. And he told us about his plan to alleviate the tension between a good creation and a creation that has gone awry. The goodness that was present at the beginning that's been distorted, is there a way to resolve that tension? If we believe that because God believed it first, and did it first, and lived it first, and then he wanted us to believe it, and so he spoke to us in language that we can understand. Now, next week we'll talk a little bit more. Estella's going to help us talk a little bit more about language and the world of the sciences, language that we can understand as we look at how the world works. So, defining our terms. Let me take a couple of minutes to uh, just say what some of the implications might be of... Um, the fact that there is, there is room within the Christian church for debate about some of the mechanics by which God created the universe. And about how to interpret the language by which he describes his creation of the universe in Genesis. A couple of ways to misunderstand what I'm about to do. One would be to say, aha, the stuff stored in the attic is so meaningless that we can twist it and shape it in, in as many forms as we like. It doesn't really matter. Right? So it doesn't matter what we say the Bible means when it talks about creation. Take your pick. Well, you know, let's, I'm going to describe five viewpoints. We could, we could be five million viewpoints. It doesn't matter. There's no truth and no reality and no meaning. Therefore, say whatever you want. It's all just kind of language games. Um, the other would be to say... There is one right way, only one right way to think about this, and if, if you were really a mature Christian or you really understood the Bible or you're really a thinking person, then you would only present one of the five views that uh, we're about to look at. Because only one of them is really, really it, right? Jimmy, that's what you really mean. You're going to be nice about the other four and then tell us the real one, right? No, I'm not. <laughs> the language of Scripture... If it's given to us by God, then we should strive to understand it the way he in, intended it. And that means we've got to be careful not to just impose our preference on that language. So, this is just one example of the kind of um, range there might be. So, uh, if you're reading the book of Genesis, there's a cycle of evening and morning the first day. And then there was evening and morning, the second day. And we get six days like that. And then on the seventh day, God rests. 
and the story just hangs there. It doesn't say there was evening and morning. That was, that was it for the seventh day, and then we moved on to the eighth. The seventh day isn't described as having an end. And, of course, you run into this snag, and we think, sometimes we think we're very clever people. We noticed a contradiction in this Genesis story. How can there be a day before there was a sun? That's a great question. In the second century, Christians were already asking that question. And before that, Jewish interpreters were asking that question. In fact, there was a saying among the rabbis that you, you should be over 30 years old before you even start to try to interpret Genesis 1. Um, don't hand the Genesis encyclopedia to a kid. Um, so, an instantaneous view of those days, this is held by Augustine in the ancient church, says the whole universe came into existence in a single moment. And human beings can't begin to fathom what that would even mean. So, God describes that moment kind of in slow motion to let us wrap our tiny little puny, we're like T-Rex arms, right? Can't, no good for anything. Like, Try understanding the whole universe coming into existence in one moment and I can't wrap my little T-Rex arms around it. So, so God says, let me hit pause and describe it for you as though it were happening in slow-mo, and you can start to understand some of the wisdom and beauty and goodness of God. In which case, those days would be metaphorical, poetic. Right? That was Augustine's view. Uh, most people have, by now have forgotten it ever existed. Put your hand up if it's the first time you've ever heard that described, not as Big Bang, but, but as a Christian interpretation of Genesis. Right? So we've kind of forgotten it. And if you tell anybody that I mentioned it, I'll get in a lot of trouble. No, I'm kidding. Uh, the calendar day view, uh, you could probably predict what this one uh, says. It's like the, the days in Genesis are just kind of ordinary days. And we realize it's, it's, you know, we can't say they're 24-hour days because everyone knows that if you've ever read the D Encyclopedia, a day is not exactly 24 hours long, right? But calendar day view. And uh, this is probably what most people assume every Christian believes. <laughs> that if, if Genesis says day, then a day is a day. And, okay, great, but that's not the only position that Christians have held through time. Now, here's what I'd want to say. If, if your view of God is such that you don't think he's powerful enough to do all of this work in six normal days, then your view of God isn't big enough yet. Is it a small view of God that's keeping you from even seriously considering this possibility? That would be a bad thing. And I'd say, let's, let's get God bigger before you reject this possibility. But let's also not assume that because Genesis uses the word day, this is the only possible interpretation. Right? Genesis also says God said, does God have lips and lungs before the incarnation of Jesus? If we're not going to push that language to be 100% literal. I don't like that word. That's for another week. Little L, big L. Um, <laughs> let's ask the question, of why would we push this one to be literal but not language about God saying? And let's all right, worth, worth, worth some thought. I'm not saying this makes no sense. I'm just saying there, there are more and less thoughtful ways to hold that position. The day-age framework became uh, more popular, I think, in the 1800s, but it's been around for quite a while. It just says that the, the creation days of Genesis are more emphasizing the sequence in which things came to exist, not the duration of the time period. So, light and dark came to exist before plants, for example. And so, the, the 24-hour days there, would be, would, uh, the, the day, would, would simply be a, a metaphor for a period of time of unknown length. And so, many people who sort of see a theistic evolution as a mechanism God uses would probably 
gravitate toward this view to say, oh yeah, so some of the big chunks of time needed for some of these evolutionary mechanisms to work would fit better here than, say, back up here. And uh, the, the blue ones are all the ones where day is poetic or metaphorical. A framework view says, this is a relatively recent view, it says uh, Genesis is arranged topically, and it, it says that Genesis 1 doesn't tell us anything about the sequence or the length of time that creation took. That's not the purpose of Genesis 1. It's there just to kind of divide things up topically and to say, you know what, before God created sun, moon, and stars, there, there's this whole thing about light and dark. There's a framework of light and dark to fit sun, moon, and stars into. And before there are fish, there's this framework called sea, ocean. And before there are land creatures, there's, there's land. And, and sort of like going through the environments and then talking about the specific portions of creation, whether sun, moon, stars, or, or animals, or humans that are going to live and flourish in those environments. It's, it's a topically arranged sequence, not chronologically, and then there's a view called the analogical that says, hey, Genesis is set up so that the analogy for God's work of creating the universe is a normal, ordinary human work week, and using that analogy... We're going to stress not chronology, how long did this take, what sequence did various things happen in, but we're just going to describe it reflecting the rhythms of a week that we're all familiar with, where evening and, and morning follow one another, and, and there are days, and, and you, you pause and you rest, and, and using that to tell us something about the fact that we live in a universe that, that has rhythms to it, and, and rhyme, and it's not randomness. So... That's just five. If, if we dug harder, we could probably find five more interpretations of what's, what's a day in the book of Genesis. And my sense is I've, I've always leaned toward this interpretation personally, but I've never had a hard time getting along with people who hold a different perspective than I do. And not wanting to hold this in some naive way that says, Today, therefore, this is the only option. It's like, yeah, but there, there's other metaphorical language here in Genesis. Well, it's time for you to, um, to have your world re-enchanted a bit. I'm going to jump forward. Let me hit a few other slides before Trisha comes up. There's some recommended resources. Uh, Jack Collins, who spoke here uh, back in the fall at a Faith and Science Symposium, has a helpful book, Science and Faith, Friends or Foes. Chapters 4 through 13 are about creation and evolution. Uh, helpful resource, Jack is a guy who loves the Lord and the Scripture and uh, has a master's degree from MIT, so he knows what the heck he's talking about scientifically as well. Um, and here's a commentary on Genesis 1 through 4 uh, that's super detailed. When you write a whole book on just four chapters of the Bible, it's detailed. Uh, if you wanted more on four of those five views uh, about the day in Genesis, you'd find that in this uh, document from our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, the Report of the Creation Study Committee. So it, it walks through the details, pros and cons of each of those views uh, at much more depth than we were able to do this morning. Guy Richard and D.A. Carson have two short articles that sort of hit the highlights of uh, if we embrace a Christian theology of creation, what are some of the implications uh, spiritually? And, and they both say, hey, sometimes we get too sidetracked by the scientific and historical <laughs> questions, which are important, but it causes us to miss some of the spiritual value. of, And they're not doing a two-story thing. They're not saying... Science and history live down here, and we got to go up to visit the attic. These are guys who live in a one-story, God-centered universe. Um, and then John Cox, a friend of in town from way back, has a story, a book called The One Story, A Psychologist Reaches for the Heart of God. Chapter 1, The Seeking God of Eden, um, talks about creation and how human uh, rebellion against God has twisted and distorted the creation and then how God responded. 
That book was recommended to me by a woman that God wants to use to re-enchant our world, and here are a couple of my favorite pictures of her. Officially. All right, well, thank you for letting me come talk. Uh, a lot of you know me. I'm Jimmy's wife. Um, I also teach a Christianity and literature group uh, at our house on Tuesday nights, and so a lot of you know already about my love of story um, and, and my sense of wonder uh, in talking about story. So a lot of you may not know that I have a chemistry degree uh, from Clemson University, and my senior research project was in organic chemistry. And then I taught high school science for several years, mostly chemistry and physics classes in public schools. And then after we had kids, then I raised our kids and I homeschooled them and taught science. And I also tutored on the side, uh, doing teaching, tutoring a lot of chemistry and physics. So I've kept up with a lot of it. And um, so there's that side of me that if I haven't tutored you in chemistry and physics, you might not know. So, but but um, anyway, part of where all of that came from is as a child, uh, it, it's all related to wonder. And I love how Jimmy talked about um, curious. Yes, more wonder. <laughs> more wonder. Um, noticing things and being curious about the world. That's just kind of how I always was. And my dad instilled a lot of that in me. We grew up out in the country um, on a mill pond uh, that had been in my family for 200 years. And so through the generations, you know, the fathers had passed down to their sons, you know, this is the land, this is how it works, this is the seasons. And um, then I was the oldest child, and I have a brother who is mentally handicapped, and so there was no son to pass it down to, so it became me. And so my dad always was like, look at the water levels in the pond. There's a storm coming. You need to understand this. And so just always teaching me to notice things and notice the world around me, um, the natural world. And I was kind of naturally curious about it anyway. So there was a lot of that. When I was in third grade, uh, I started a rock club with three or four boys in my class, and it consisted of we would bring our little toolboxes to class, and at recess we would bring our rocks out, and we would sit at a table just like one of these and pound on them with hammers. And, um, <laughs> and our teacher stopped it after like a week. Um, she was very tired of <laughs> just making this giant mess, but we were trying to see which rocks would break up under the hammer and which ones would not. And there were some very satisfying ones that would just go completely into dust. So um, I remember that as a child, um, just playing in the woods all the time and noticing things, um, you know, messing with a stream where the water was, and I would dig different ways to see what would happen if I did this, you know, then what would the water do? And just so many things like that that I was just naturally curious and then at school, I, I just enjoyed school in general, but I never really connected the two things. You know, my sense of wonder and then school stuff. It was kind of like you were saying, the attic and the, and the um, first floor. Well, then one day I had this amazing science teacher in high school, and she was really smart. She taught us calculus, pre-calculus, physics, chemistry, and advanced chemistry. So um, I had her for all of those classes, and I was very scared of her the first day I went in there, and she gave us her phone number and said, anytime you're working on homework and you get stuck, you can call me as long as it's before 10 o'clock. And that made her much less intimidating, and we all just grew to really love her. But one day, so she was teaching chemistry, and I vividly remember this, and she was just going on about something on the board and blah, 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 and it was just normal chemistry day. And all of a sudden, she turned around and she said, y'all, we went, what's she going to say? She said, stomach acid. And we were okay. <laughs> and she just said, just do you understand? If, if stomach acid was a little stronger, it would eat through your stomach. And if it wasn't as strong as it is, it wouldn't digest your food. It's exactly how God made it to be for exactly what it needs to do. And she just went on about stomach acid for the longest time. But I remember, I mean, I vividly remember that 
just waking something up and connecting the wonder and the science. And so then applying that wonder to all of the science and then taking the science and applying it to the wonder and figuring out why does this do like this? And that God was behind it all. I always had the sense that God was behind it all and there was a reason and we could figure it out because he's a God of order. And that's part of why I love chemistry. I mean, I love, y'all are going to think I'm so weird now. <laughs> I love balancing equations. You know, you have, you have these chemicals on this side, and then you have this, what do they turn into? Oh, my goodness, look, all the things over here are over here. And oh, that's just amazing. And so, you know, how does that all work? And, uh, and it does. And the periodic table I could talk about for days because it's just so interesting. And, it's a visual, I'm very visual, and I'm like, oh, look, it all works together, and <laughs> so it's just a lot of fun to me, so, so marrying those two things together. Um, let's see, uh, one, one of the other things, um, when I was teaching my kids, doing, you know, homeschooling them, I learned so much more uh, about, you know, marrying these two things together. One of them is the miracle of water. Um, water is like one of the few substances in the world, all right, so you know you have the phases of matter, solid, liquid, and gas, right? So with water, when water turns into a solid, it floats, okay? The solid of water is less dense than the liquid, and so it floats. Everything else, the solid is more dense, and it sinks. And so you might think, well, so what? Water, yay, ice. We know that. You know, the ice is on the... Ice is in the top of your glass of water. But think about lakes when they freeze. The ice is on the top. It's not on the bottom. If the ice was on the bottom, it would never unfreeze, and all the things would die. But God made it, made water really weird and unique, that the water floats, and it's because of hydrogen bonds and gaps in the crystals, and there's air and all this stuff. But it's just so amazing. And so you just look around at the things you take for granted, <clears throat> And you see God's hand in it, and it's just fascinating. So um, I love looking at that. And so now onto these pictures. So part of the wonder, or part of the fun of wonder and enchantment and excitement, and I guess just noticing, noticing the little things in the world around you. And I, and I think of Suzanne Thompson's blog and this is in her photos and this is what that's all about too is noticing noticing little things in the everyday um when we got to go on sabbatical and again thank you again for sending us on sabbatical that was such a gift um three weeks of our travels were walking along this coast so i don't know can you see any of the paths yeah i saw one in that one probably not anyway there's some people all walking on the path right over here <laughs> yeah, so, so for three weeks we were walking along this path and kind of the motto of the path is keep the sea on the right because um, you're walking along the coast the whole time and the sea is on the right and on the left are, are flowers there so if, if I turn this way I see the sea if I turn this way I see flowers and I see sheep and so every day, day after day after day after day, I'm in this immeasurable beauty of the sea on one side and the flowers on the other. So after a while, I just, you know, and, and a, lot of, a lot of our time was quiet. Jimmy was like walking about 20 yards ahead of me, and so there wasn't talking, you know, we were just walking, and we were just in it. And after about an hour of walking, my my mind would go quiet and I could just be it's just really hard to describe but so as as we went through this time I just realized that on the one you know I was just seeing the Lord's hand and the Lord's character in this every day on the one side I had the sea which was this powerful marvelous incredibly dangerous huge uncontrollable force you know if I had stepped wrong I mean in some places there was literally like a wire between you and the edge of the cliff and that was the little way you had to walk <laughs> it 
And um, yeah, the guidebook says, yes, yeah, one wire between you and death. And I said, that's, that's so reassuring. <laughs> and so, so that you have on the one side and the power of the sea against the rocks and cutting it away over time and the water and just all of that amazing. It just made me think of God's power and majesty and holiness and separate from us and in a dangerousness about the Lord. And at the same time, I could turn right here and see, I could count like 10 different kinds of little flowers with bees and butterflies all in there and seeds being given off and gorgeous little smells and just the intricacy of all of it and the tiny detail. And then the sheep had just had their babies, and so the mama sheep were all with the baby sheep, and the baby sheep would be calling to the mamas, and just seeing the tenderness there, and the way, and the the baby would be off in one part of the field bleeding, and the mama would call to it, and the baby would cry and cry until it, but they knew each other's voices, and the baby would cry, and they would finally find each other, and then they'd be fine, and so on that side, seeing God's tenderness, and his care for detail, and his just even in the most minute things, his love for us. And so to have that constantly pictured for me every day was just such a thing. It went, it just made such a deep impression on my heart that even now, you know, if I'm tired or wrestling with him or, you know, wondering about something, I just, I can close my eyes and I can go back to that and say, he's both, he's both, he's big and mighty and powerful and he's also tender and loving and cares about the tiny details of my life. And somehow he can put both those things together. And I don't understand it. It is a mystery. And so that's some of the, the wonder, too, of science. And, and just living in the world we live in and marrying that to the longing as well, looking at the world and knowing it's not as it should be. So looking back to the goodness of creation, but also looking forward to one day to his redemption when he, when he returns and he makes all things new and he fixes all the brokenness we see that makes us so sad. So, um, so yeah, just to wrap up, I, I hope you have a sense just from hearing Trisha's heart of um, what it means to, to be a whole person. Right, so that um, as Christians, we don't have any interest in being brains on a stick who are just using our minds. And we don't have any interest in, in just being kind of a, a, a big heart that's always full of emotion. Like, we, we want to be whole people. We want to integrate everything about life. And, and part of the re-enchantment of life is like a, a, a reintegration so that we're no longer kind of living part of life in the top story in the attic and, and part of life down here in, in uh, reality. And so I think one application you'd hear of that and what Tricia said, I think that some Christians believe that God's tenderness and love is an attic sentimental, like God's really powerful. He's really a stern king. And everything we know of him as father and shepherd is just make-believe. And the good news of Christianity is it's, it's all of life on one floor. The, the same God who is the powerful king is the tender shepherd and the loving father. Um, and, and he doesn't just love the spiritual part of you and hate the intellectual part of you. And he doesn't just love the intellectual part of you and wish the intellectual, uh, the spiritual part would go away. He loves everything about what it means to be human because he made us in his